Warning, this episode contains discussion of topics involving religions. Listener discretion is advised. Podcasting, the final frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings, and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. My name is Gene Hendricks, and this is my first follow-up episode. This time out, I'm going back to one of my more popular topics, mythology. It seems that one of my most popular shows, at least from the feedback I've been getting, is also my shortest to date. I'm not sure how to feel about that. In any case, I'd like to delve a little deeper into the lore of the Greek gods for this show. Before we get to that, I want to mention something, kind of in the vein of a disclaimer. I am a heathen, also known as a Germanic pagan, by which I mean that my religion involves the worship of the Norse gods. As such, I'm open to a vast variety of gods existing, including those of the Greeks, as well as those of monotheistic religions such as Christianity. Therefore, when I'm talking about this topic, keep in mind that I'm coming from a place where I believe that these gods do exist, whether I worship them or not. I don't believe in all the lore being literal. I have too much of a background in science and engineering for that. But I think that it all has a basis in reality. First off, as with every religion, there is a creation story. As with many creation stories, something comes from nothing. And that goes for the theory of the Big Bang as well. That's just the creation story as seen by scientists. Of course, there's evidence and scientific theory behind it. But it's not mutually exclusive with religious creation stories. I'll probably get more into this when I cover the Norse concept of the Genunga Gap in another show. In this case, we start with a nothing named Chaos, with a capital C. Out of Chaos came the Titans. The first generation included Gaia, the Earth, and Uranus, the Sky, among others. These two were the parents of a brood of other Titans, including Kronos, the most powerful. Now Uranus, fearing that his children would overthrow him, took the children and imprisoned them. Kronos was able to fight against his father for what he did and took his place. Uranus either just using prophecy or actually cursing his son, foretold that one of Kronos' children would topple him as Kronos had toppled his own father. Kronos then freed his brothers and sisters, for the most part. The most dangerous of the Titans, he imprisoned in Tartarus. To avoid his father's prophecy, Kronos swallowed each of his children as they were born. When the sixth was born, Rhea, the mother of the children, hid the baby and replaced him with a rock wrapped in a blanket. Not needing to chew the children, Kronos swallowed the rock and figured that was that. Rhea, having seen her husband imprison his brethren and eat his children, raised the child, Zeus, in secret. When he was old enough, Zeus overthrew Kronos, releasing his brothers and sisters. The three brothers then divided the world between themselves. Poseidon, the eldest, was given rule over the sea. Hades, the middle brother, took dominion over the underworld and the souls of the dead. Zeus, as the hero, was given the sky. So what can we learn from this tale? First off, we learn that titans don't learn. Either that, or they can't see beyond the moment. 
Uranus hid his children away because he thought they would become more powerful than him and take over. Well, guess what happened? I don't know if it would have turned out differently if he had just raised the children, not imprisoned them, but I can pretty much guarantee that if you lock someone away, you're not going to get a lot of love from them. So Kronos overthrows his father, and then immediately locks his more dangerous brother in a way and eats his children, for the same reason as his father. Again, I don't know if his overthrow could have been avoided, but I'm pretty sure that Zeus would have had a much better opinion of his father if dear old dad didn't try and eat him. But Zeus does the same thing when Athena is born, and she's foretold to be wiser than her father. But at least that doesn't end with another regime change. It does give Zeus a bit of a headache, though, as Athena bursts from his skull. He lived, but he wanted someone to invent an Excedrin. I also want to point out that Hades was not being punished or put upon when he was given the Underworld to rule over, no matter what Disney tells you. Hades, by getting the Underworld, also became the god of wealth, since the Earth is where all precious metals and gems come from. There's also a misconception, mainly from monotheists, that the Underworld is equal to punishment. It isn't. It is just where the dead go. Yes, Tartarus is located there, and that's where the wicked are punished for all eternity, but Elysium, the Greek equivalent of heaven, is also there. Most souls, however, just go to Hades. You see, in the pagan worldview, and those that worship the Greek gods are referred to as Hellenistic pagans, when you die, you go to the underworld, unless you've done some really bad or really good things in your life. The underworld is just where you go when you die. That's where your family, your friends, your pets, basically everyone you knew that died, is. There also isn't a uh, get-out-of-Tartarus-free card with paganism. You are the sum total of your acts throughout your life. Did the good outweigh the bad? Then you're fine. Did the bad outweigh the good? Then you're probably also fine. It is only when you're at one end of the spectrum or the other that you really go somewhere else. It's a good bet for most of us that we're just going to end up with everyone we know in the end. On that note, let's take a break. On the other side, we'll get into some more Greek lore. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual, I try to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding them. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. They're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You no, know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look, for, look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed, too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that what simple. Sh- you just got to go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Bins. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on what? 2TrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. 
They're you all got them? All the shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. You, you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Oh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gorker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it, so the two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on and do a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. And we're back. Now I like to talk more on creation-type stuff, but not necessarily involving the whole universe. The majority of the lore of the Greeks is all based in the Heroic Age, which existed hundreds, if not thousands, of years before their present day. Many of the tales involve why certain things are the way they are, whether that's a place's name, why an animal looks the way it does, or how something was formed. One such story involves how Athens got its name. Way back when, the first king of what would be Athens, Cacrops, who was half man and half serpent, like most politicians, decided that his city was prosperous enough that it needed a patron god. The two gods interested in the job were Athena and Poseidon. It was decided that whoever gave the best gift to the city-state would become the city's patron. Poseidon went first and, striking his trident upon the ground, created a new sea. But, as it was composed of salt water, it wasn't considered to be all that useful. Athena was next. She struck her spear upon the ground, an olive tree grew. The tree was already at full height and had fruit upon it. 
Knowing the usefulness of olives, the population declared the goddess the victor and named their city Athens in her honor. So why, you may ask, would a prosperous city-state want a god on their side? Shouldn't they be happy with what they made themselves? True, the Athenians can be proud of what they did do without outside help. But there are some things, especially in a world where gods exist, that humans can't do. They need someone on a higher plane to give them aid when necessary. Keeping in mind that we're talking about a worldview in which you have fickle gods and other immortal beings. So being tied to one of them through a gift cycle allows you to be a little less paranoid. I probably should explain the gift cycle to those not familiar with the term. In the pagan worldview, at least as far as my experience has shown me, there exists communication between the mortal and immortal through gifts. In the heathen mindset, and I'm sure many of the others, the phrase is, a gift demands a gain. In other words, if I give you something, I expect something in return. This is why in the Old Norse, the title of king is also synonymous with gold hater. In return for the gifts he gave his men, he expected their service and loyalty. In modern times, you could liken it to employment. In return for the gift of payment, I give my employer my time and energy. As far as dealing with gods, or whites or ancestors for that matter, offerings are made as gifts by mortals. In return, we mortals are expecting aid when we need it. Seldom do I ask for specific things. More like, I'm making my offerings out of goodwill and expecting goodwill in return. Of course, I have only ever made one personal offering to a god in my life. I normally deal with the land whites where I live. In any case, this is why the prosperous city of Athens would want a goddess, especially one as wise and powerful as Athena on their side. They have set up a gift cycle in which they got an olive tree, and Athena gets their loyalty. From that time on, the city as a whole would make sacrifices, be they objects or animals, in order to keep relying on her goodwill. As an aside, I think I should talk a little about animal sacrifice. I have not been to an actual animal sacrifice myself, but I do know how it is done, at least in heathen circles in modern times. As this is based on reconstruction of ancient rituals from whatever historical records we can find, I am reasonably certain that this is how it would be done back in the day, so to speak. One major item is that these animals are raised to be offerings to gods. Abuse of said animals will not win you any brownie points, so they are generally well cared for. Typically, the animal is led around the assembled group, and each person whispers a short message they want to be taken to Asgard or Olympus, what have you. The animal is then humanely slaughtered by someone who knows what he's doing, usually a farmer or a butcher. The more quick and painless it is for the animal, the better. In fact, your average grocery store meat animal suffers more than the sacrificial animal does. The carcass is then cooked to feed the assembled worshippers, with the leftovers being burnt as the offering to the gods. In the ceremonies I have attended, we have not had the means to raise said animal, so we typically cut a cake in the shape of a pig, take it around to everyone as normal, quickly cut the head off, and burn it. It serves the same purpose, and is known as a votive offering, with the cake standing in for an actual pig. That being said, the ancient Greeks most likely followed the same kind of procedure. Keep in mind, they did not want a pissed-off goddess coming after them, so taking the utmost care with offerings would have been the order of the day. Alright, that's enough of that. 
Let's take another quick break, and when we come back, assuming anyone's still listening, we'll cover a story that actually has some consequences. Copyright the Relatively Geeky Network. In-Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In-Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with me. Now I'd like to go over the story of Hades and Persephone. One day, Persephone goddess of vegetation, was picking flowers. Hades, having a desire for a wife, kidnapped her and took her to the underworld. Hey, just because I said the underworld wasn't evil doesn't mean Hades couldn't be a prick. Zeus allowed this because Hades was in love with a beautiful goddess, and because he knew her mother, Demeter, would never allow Persephone to go and live in the underworld. Demeter is the goddess of the harvest, and while she searched all over the world for her daughter, she did not allow any crops to come to fruition. Eventually, Helios, the son, told Demeter what had happened, and she went to Zeus and demanded her daughter's return. This was the latest outcry to reach Zeus's ears, since the hungry people of the world were calling out for the crops to grow. Zeus relented and forced Hades to return the goddess. Hades complied, but not before Persephone had eaten some pomegranate seeds. Having tasted the food of the underworld, she was forced to return there for one-third of every year. Demeter, so saddened by her daughter's absence, refused to let anything grow during that period. Many believe this period corresponds to the winter months, but it is more likely that the summer, when the areas around the Mediterranean are so hot that nothing can grow there, is the correct corresponding period. Unfortunately, as with much of Greek lore, the consequences that I alluded to before happened to the wrong people. Zeus and Hades engineered the kidnapping, but it is Persephone and Demeter, and secondarily humans, who are punished for it. Hades gains a wife, who becomes queen of the underworld, and Zeus doesn't have anything happen to him at all. Contrast this with the Norse tale of Njord and Skaldi, also a way to explain the divide of the year between summer and winter. In this case, the giantess Galvi came to the gods seeking a husband. She wanted to marry Balder, but the gods refused, saying that she could only choose a god by looking at his feet. Thinking that the god of light would have the most beautiful feet of all the Aesir, she instead chose Njord, god of coastal waters. 
they were married and went back to Scaldi's home in the mountains. Njord could not stand the cold and biting winds there, so they tried to live in his home at the seashore. Scaldi, though, did not like the heat and the calls of the gulls. Eventually, they decided that they would spend one-third of the year at the shore and the remainder in the mountains. In this tale, the two parties are married out of their own actions and choices. While neither is truly punished, they don't care for each other's homes and, like most married couples, they compromise on a solution. This is the same tale as the Greek, at least in what it's trying to accomplish, which is telling you why the year is divided into seasons. But it works as a more mature tale. Maybe it's my innate bias towards the Norse, but it just seems to me that you would want gods to show you how to live, rather than how not to live. And that's where I'm going to wrap it up this time. I hope you enjoyed this, and maybe, just maybe, learned a little something. Let me know if you want me to continue on with this uh, look-in on the lore of the ancient and not-so-ancient peoples. I can be reached by email at gene, that's G-E-N-E, at thehammerstrikes.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time. The Hammer Podcast is a production of thehammerstrikes.com. Questions and comments can be emailed to gene at thehammerstrikes.com. Look for The Hammer Strikes on Facebook and Google+. Part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.